0: Sons and daughters of the King, sing to the living God. That is quite an affirmation to make about ourselves as God's people. By faith in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of the living God, children of the living God. And it is easy for those of us who've heard that kind of terminology our whole lives to take it for granted it's also easy for someone who actually isn't a child of god through faith in jesus to think they are not realizing that because of our sin in our human condition we all start with we have forfeited our rights as sons our our inheritance that we have through jesus and so we are going to spend time this morning thinking about what it means to be the family of god we've Uh, Started a series last week, Kenny so ably helped us start to think about what it means to gather like this. Why do we do this? What are we doing here? It's so easy to get in a routine and forget why we gather like this, when we gather as God's people. And so we wanted to take five weeks this fall and remind ourselves why it is we gather. And last week, Kenny reminded us that we gather in a temple as a temple to worship God and it's really important to realize that these five weeks church as temple church as home church as school church as hospital and church as barracks are really important to understand in an integrated way these are important distinctions of who we are as the people of God when we gather And it's also very important for us to realize how integrated these have to be. We gather this morning thinking about this being a home for us because it's where we find family because we desperately need love from God but through the people of God. And so this morning we think about church's home. That word home can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. My home life wasn't so great growing up. And actually a phrase my brother and I would use with some frequency when we'd see each other out in the playground or wherever we'd run into each other. We didn't, even though he's only two years older, we didn't most of the time run in the same circles. But when we would run into each other, sometimes we'd say to each other, don't go home. Mommy's in a rage, we'd say. It's not safe to go home right now. And so home can easily, for some of us, mean an unsafe place. It can mean the place we in our life have felt most vulnerable. It can mean a place where there's been great damage done to us because it's the place we expect to find security. It's the place we expect to find comfort and protection, and provision. But for many of us in this sin-ravaged world, home means something very different than that. And so it's vital for us to seek to redeem our conceptions when life has ruined those conceptions. We've got to put them back together. According to God's perspective, this is one of my greatest burdens for us as a people for christians as a people that we don't just develop our reality from our experiences but from god's word that leads us down the path redeeming things that could be a place we hate but we need to see the church as a home With all our imperfections, with all our failures, with all our disappointments, with all our sin, with all our offenses, and the ways we will hurt one another because we're not home entirely yet, we've got to work very hard to see the church as a home, a true family, the truest family, actually, you'll ever have. We need to redeem whatever conception of home you have. Maybe your home for you growing up was a wonderful place and I thank God for that because you've got a head start in seeing the church from God's perspective. And the reason a home is a home is because not it's a structure where we get protection from the rain. Was that awesome last night? Oh, you know, I'm from the Northeast and from the Midwest, and so that's not uncommon where I come from. It's just good for your soul to hear, in the middle of the night, it's just... Oh, good and lightning and don't you feel small thankful for your home that you're getting shelter within and and home does have a sheltering effect literally from rain and and lightning and and criminals who would otherwise take advantage of you in your vulnerability and and so home the str- the actual structure provides something warmth and protection and comfort that you would want a home to but the real reason A home is a home is because it's where your family is. You know, there are people who live in homes that literally have leaky roofs. My wife Donna's grandfather, their great-grandfather, lived in a shack that her father actually spent a lot of time in, and, and rain came in. You know, you can have a pretty bad structure you live in that's your home, but if the family that lives in that home is a place of security and safety and warmth, even with the mess that families can be, if there can somehow be a place where you find family, then it's a home. You can live in a little shack. You can live in a tent. But if the family that lives in there is true family it can be a wonderful place of security and comfort and peace and perspective and love and that's what we want to provide here at grace that's what each of us wants to provide in the homes in which we live on a daily basis but here at grace we want to be a family that is truly making this place a home for us i love that my kids I think very easily view all of you as family and this as a home sometimes it's actually uh, concerning to me how little divide they see between our home and this place and when they were little it meant they would run on the chairs and they would do all sorts of things that seemed a little less uh formal than it should be here at church but there was something right about that that they felt a freedom here now i would tell them to get off the chairs but There was at the same time a sense of, oh, there's something right about how comfortable they are here. And it was amazing how we would often be the last people to leave sometimes. Sorry, ushers. Andrew Weston waiting around for us to (laughs) turn off the lights. But, But my kids very seldom would say, can we go home because this felt so much like home to them. And it's because of all of you. It's because of how much you have made them feel at home here. And like family, you know, we adopted our kids. They were all older, and it was amazing how quickly this became family for them. And I want to start by emphasizing the fact that we are family. We are family. If you're over 50, when you hear the words, we are family... (laughs) (laughs) What's the next word you think of? Yes, Moyer busted it out. That's right. (laughs) That's it. Isn't that funny, man? In 1979, that song got embedded in our heads, and it didn't help that the Pirates had it as their theme song for their World Series run that they had. And you know who wrote, who sang that song? Anybody know who, who? Sister Sledge. There you go, Darren Early. Right. You know, what I, you know what I realized? They're actually from Philly, which is kind of weird that the Pittsburgh Pirates use their song. I bet the Phillies are still mad about it. If the Phillies make it to the World Series, they need to reclaim that song from these Philly girls who sang We Are Family. Um, they were actually raised growing up singing in the church. But, but I, I'm going to actually start off quoting a Little Sister Sledge. You ready? We Are Family. I got all my sisters with me. We Are Family. Who knows what's next? Get up everybody and sing. That's right, we are family. I got all my sisters with me. We are family, get up everybody and sing. And then listen to the first dance. Everyone can see we're together as we walk on by and we fly just like birds of a feather. I won't tell no lie. All the people around us they say they can't be that close. But let me just state for the record We're giving love in a family dose. Oh, is that great? I love that. (laughs) That's just fantastic. We're giving love in a family dose. I mean, they needed something to rhyme with close. (laughs) But dose is a pretty good one, you know? And and I, I love that. There's actually, no, you can't be that close, can you? Wouldn't it be great if people who looked at us here at Grace said nah you can't be that close like how different you two are how can you be so close and and talk about a great opportunity to preach christ to people and say yeah we are that close because we're family i know demographically we may have some pretty drastic differences but because of jesus we're family we're brother and sister. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5? I just want to look at a couple verses here and then I want to go back to Galatians. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. It's, it's just beautiful. Just these two verses. Listen to this. Listen to this description of who we are. Ephesians 5.1. So he's been talking about the new life that we have in Christ and having learned Christ and, and who God has made us to be in him. So listen to this is what he says. Therefore, in light of what God has done to make you in Christ the way he has, therefore be imitators of God. I love that word mimitai there. It, it, it's really, really accurately translated, as accurate as you can, with the English word "imitate." Imitate God. Be imitators of none other than God Himself. Be imitators of God. And what I love about that phrase is I don't feel like being like God a lot of the time. And in our day, this this idea of authenticity is so highly valued, defined as what I'm feeling in my guts at the moment that imitation seems inauthentic. Imitation seems phony. Imitation seems to be just external, but I love the fact that God acknowledges there is a place for imitation in the Christian life. You look at God, or you look at godly people, and you act like they do. Even if, in the beginning, there's a gap between that coming naturally and feeling natural in what you know is godly. So we're called to be imitators of God based on what? As beloved children. And so this starts with looking at what God's like, understanding his love, and then recognizing that we are beloved children, first and foremost, by God. We are loved by God. I hope you see yourself as beloved, as loved by God, deeply and profoundly, in in incredible ways. And so, so this beloved identity is vital for us. And then what's the implication of being loved? Walking in love. If you're loved by God, if you are one of his loved children, well, then walk in love. Again, based on what? As Christ loved us. So the way we are loved by God in Christ ends up getting a horizontal expression in the way we love one another and walk in love, abiding in God's love for us in Christ and then translating that into the way we love others in our relationships, first and foremost in the church. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us because love always involves giving. It's been said that you can give without loving. I do it all the time, especially to the IRS. I give without love. Now maybe I should work on that. I don't know. But it's impossible, though, to love without giving. You can't have love without giving, without an other concern, an other focus, a self-sacrificial, seeking intentionally the good of another but it's all gotta be grounded so clearly in God's love for us in Christ as beloved children. If we try to love disconnected from God's love for us, it will be a futile effort. It will not be what God intends for it to be. But Jesus gives himself up for us and becomes the model for us in the way we love each other. Once we truly become satisfied in his love and the spirit pours it out in our hearts, we then have an overflow of that love for one another. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then, in light of that, we become living sacrifices as well. Walking in love, living in love, being the people God has created us to be, depending on Jesus to do this. We are family. You know, we've been singing these songs this morning. I hope you realize that that we sing because it's what we believe but we also sing because we want to believe it more. I've never sung one worship song believing it 100%. I will in heaven, but this side of heaven, there's still a gap between my belief uh, in what's true and my actual deep down experience of that and working out of that. And so I sing children of the living God sing to the living God. You know, we're singing that to each other there. Love that. We're exhorting one another. We're encouraging one another in the midst of our worship. But but when we sing to each other in that way, we're singing in a way that expresses what we believe, but we're also singing in a way that's deepening what we believe. Intensifying what we believe. We are family. And sometimes I need to say that in spite of believing it to the degree i want to there's so many things in my sinful heart that war against truly seeing all of you as family for some of you it comes easier and that's right where god wants to work when it doesn't come easier that's right where he wants to work we are family through our identity in Christ because we are beloved children. Now now would you go back to Galatians chapter 4. It picks up on this same theme. The way we live is grounded in who God is and who we are in Christ. Listen to Galatians 4 beginning of verse 23. I'm sorry. Uh, Galatians 3.23, and then we'll continue to four seven. Galatians 3.23, here we go. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So we're made right according to the law by faith now no longer with it as our the law is our schoolmaster the schoolmaster does his job by pointing us to christ this guardian ushers us to jesus who fulfills the law for us so that we're justified now by faith but now that faith has come we're no longer under a guardian we live by faith now right Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Christ. Now, ladies, don't get caught up in the sonship language here. It's actually very important. I think there's value in translations that want to make sure that women feel included with sons and daughter language. But but what we have here is a sonship that comes through the son. And so there's this connection with Jesus, the son of God, and in him, we are co-heirs with the son. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, it says. So don't, don't get, get caught up on the, the gender specificity of the language. You're most certainly included with that. Actually, I think if a woman in the first century read that you will have inheritance of sons and daughters, the daughter would have said, oh, still got that daughter inheritance, huh? It's not what I was hoping for in Jesus. I was hoping for the same rights as sons that we've always had here. And that's exactly what they have. They, oh, that's why it's no longer male and female. They all have the inheritance of the son because by faith they have sonship in the son. And so there's this glorious recognition that by adoption and by new birth, we are all children of God. We were outside of God's family. We were not his children. And then God brought us inside and made us sons by faith in the redeeming death of his son, Jesus. And this comes with astounding privileges. Kenny hit on these beautifully last week. We were slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we used to be. But now we are saved by adoption and by new birth. And now we're fellow heirs with the Son of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8 says. Fellow heirs with Christ, because he's truly human, he represents us and he wins our inheritance in his representation of us and he brings many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. We had been totally disqualified from being heirs of God. But because Jesus bore our sin and endured God's wrath for us, he makes it possible to become joint heirs with him and share in his inheritance, the firstborn son. And so we're fellow heirs with Christ by adoption, having everything we need. We have now moved from poverty to riches. And you know how we do that? Through the son moving from riches to poverty. That's how uh, this, this incarnation is described in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He was rich but became poor so that in him we might become rich. There's this incredible transformation that takes place. And it's not just a legal status. It's really who we are. It's by birth as well as adoption. And we now share in the divine nature. His character has taken root in us by the Spirit and his seed through the Spirit now abides in us, growing and forming to make us more like Jesus. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God doesn't just call us his children. He doesn't just declare us legally his children. He actually views us as his children in relationship with him and we need to learn to view ourselves that way. Do you know the term brothers or brothers and sisters is used 180 times in the New Testament? It is the most common way Christians refer to each other in the Bible. I remember Evie Hill hearing a sermon Evie Hill preached a long time ago. He used to be one of my favorite preachers. Listen to him all the time as a kid growing up and as a young man. And I remember him lamenting when he watched in the 60s. Um, African-Americans using brother and sister, even in the church, to highlight their common connection because of their race. And he feared that among African-American Christians something would be lost when that racial connection becomes the primary connection. I experienced something similar when I moved to Southern California, and and everybody started calling me bro. was quite strange you know this guy never met hey bro bro now there's something sort of cool about affirming our commonalities and significant things about ourselves like our common humanity or even a common heritage or cultural background but but I actually don't use bro I, don't. I know it's everybody does here, and it's sort of, oh, cool, he called me bro. Uh, because I, I want to reserve some really significant meaning for that. I'm really concerned that the word brother or sister, al- although my son calls my wife bro all the time. So it's, it's very strange what's happening. But, but she went from mommy to mama to mom to mother to bro. That was the progression. Uh, but... <laughs> But I, I, I try not to use it. It's sort of the vernacular here. But man, we overuse that word. We overuse the word family. You know, the Starbucks family. Please. Please. The corporations love to use it. Teams use it after the first practice. You know, we're family. Yeah, and My son's uh, basketball team he plays for in high school, they had these warm-up jerseys that said Family until the kid quits next week. I, I just, I'm just not sure how that, how that works. But, but I don't want to overuse these words. I want them to have meaning. I want to have significance. Now, I'm not going to be judging you if you call the, the guy at the supermarket bro or brother. But, but shouldn't these words really have meaning? Shouldn't, shouldn't we reserve words like family and brother and sister for the reality of these things? This, this is an awesome reality. And so we need to work this out in the way we think about each other, in the way we talk to each other, and the way we talk about each other, and the way we relate to each other. The church is home because it's where we find family, which means it's where we find our identity. Way more than any other gathering, way more than any other demographic affiliation you may have, Dodger fan, sorry. Whatever. It, it's amazing these bonding experiences we have with things like sports teams or, or common backgrounds of some kind. I mean, I'll admit when I meet somebody from the Northeast, kind of where I was from, sort of a rough and tumble area, that it feels like immediate connection. I could tell in the two sentences that they talk kind of like I do. You might not notice the difference, but I do immediately. And, and I'm, not igni- I'm not denying that there's something cool about a connection that comes from your background, but we have gotta be people who are so theologically driven in our understanding of everything that our identity as brothers and sisters in the family of God, because God loved us with the love of a father who adopted us and gave birth to us spiritually, that that so trumps everything else. Nothing comes close. You know, my, my wife Donna did her PhD dissertation in education, and she interviewed Christian college students and asked them their definition of community. Her dissertation title is uh, Christian College Students' Conceptions of Community. Some good alliteration there, but it, it, yeah, and she asked them, where do you find community? And even if they could give biblically grounded answers to that question of where they're they're supposed to find community, you know, in Christ, among the people of God. When she would ask them, and where have you experienced it? Do you know where they would say, what they would say? Uh, with, with people who like to surf or people who like cold play. She did it in the 90s. <laughs> hobbies, hobbies, musical preference and taste. You know, uh, just these commonalities that, that are fine to find some sort of connection in. But it was actually a tragic research project because these young Christians, even if they knew the right answers, the actual place they experienced, the kind of community they deeply longed for and were created for, was around their favorite band, <laughs> not Jesus. Jesus and we live in an age where people are finding identity in anything they can and we've got our identity firmly defined and grounded and accomplished in christ we we can't let ourselves get pulled in all these directions where our demographic differences are how we identify ourselves rather than jesus and one of our ministry values here at Grace is a unified diversity. And that, that means every kind we can think of, cultural, racial, uh, 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 financial, socioeconomic. We, we, we want a diversity generationally. We want older and younger to really be in relationship with each other. And it happens beautifully here at Grace. We want, we want 18-year-olds and 8-year-olds to know 80-year-olds and vice versa. That's why we're... N- as long as I'm here and have any say anymore I will not want a traditional and contemporary service because you know what that means old and young loud and cranky that's that's what that means <laughs> and, and we can't do that if we can't sing together we've surrendered We've just surrendered. How how about that? That the worship wars in this country are driven by the style of music people like and that the generations can't get together on that. That's just pitiful, people. That, That we would let these kinds of petty superficial preferences just kills. I remember when we started 23 years ago, Walt sat at the piano in the old sanctuary and he turned to the old people in our church. He didn't say that, but that's what he was doing. He turned to the old people in our church, sitting at it wasn't this piano until somebody gave us this one. It was an old piano. And he sit there and he turns to the congregation and he says, Now we're about to sing an old hymn that many of you know. And I've rearranged it remember this wall <laughs> and he said and I know this is going to bother some of you a lot that's what he said and he said and I understand but I think it's worth it to breathe some new life into this old hymn so he said these are all word for word I have a strange memory he he said because i was sit right in the front row watching him say this he said so if this really bothers you I would love to talk to you after the service and help you understand why I think it's worth it isn't that beautiful that's that's why we call worship leaders at grace worship pastors and not just music leaders right because because he, he was shepherding and and it, the, the older folks were gonna be mad I can't remember what the hymn was but but he, he gave it a new tune but we get so upset about those kinds of things it's really sad really sad you know we have so many enemies in the spiritual realm that are wanting to undo us and they often undo us with the kind of music we like <laughs> it, it's just an absurdity. it just Satan loves this he's laughing when we divide over these things that we take so seriously but compared with our identity in Christ that we share are meaningless And so we have identity. We have equality among the people of God. This is glorious. The world is desperately wanting and pursuing equality, and we have it in Jesus. At the foot of the cross, the ground is completely level. At the foot of the cross, there there are no uh, greaters or lessers. We're all in it together. It's where we find equality. We are all beloved in Christ equally, we're all heirs in Christ equally. We're all recipients of the promises of God equally. Galatians 3.28, we're all one in Christ Jesus. God doesn't have favorite children. No favoritism, no partiality, no cliques, no racism or sexism or or, self-righteousness or anything that's inappropriate for children of God. And one of the greatest things about the church is you don't get to pick who's here. It's like your earthly family, you know? You go to a reunion, and you're mostly looking forward to it. Except for that one dude. Usually an uncle, you know? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Thanks, Nikki. At least you can relate to me. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you don't get to pick them. You didn't get to pick anybody who's here. Isn't that great? When you go hang out at Starbucks with your buds, that ain't the church, because you get to pick who's there until somebody rolls into the Starbucks and decides to sit down with you, and you're like, oh, here goes this. But but that's the church. You don't get to pick who's here. And that's one of the hardest things about it. And it's one of the most important things about it. Because if you're always the one choosing who you're with instead of God among his family, you're never going to grow the way he wants you to and other people aren't going to grow without your presence there. And so so we've got to realize that we are all equal in God's sight. You know what the Bible says? It's an awesome verse that we usually skip over to get to the husband wife stuff in Ephesians 5. It says submit to one another in the church among the people of God. In other words, put your petty preferences aside and submit to one another. You know what it says the reason? Out of fear of Christ. You fear Jesus so much, you submit to each other. Is that beautiful? Because you know Jesus is so concerned about his beloved loving well in the church, and so because you you fear him so significantly, you, you have a kind of fear for one another in a healthy way. You respect, you revere the people of God. And that's why we're called to love one another with brotherly affection, We're commanded to let brotherly love continue, starting with our brother Jesus, who gives us sonship and gives us adoption and new life in the family of God. Listen to 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I've told you I'm writing a book, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. My dad said to me the other day, "Dad, Eric, if you don't get that book done, you should probably stop saying you're writing it. (laughs) That's my dad. He's great. But I got a research leave in the spring, so I am going to get after that thing. But one of the chapters is I think Christians should stop saying, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. Now, I get why we say that, because on the way to really loving you, I may not like you. On the way to my committed love because you're my brother or sister in Christ, well, well, along the way, sometimes there's a real disconnect be- between the kind of love I long to have and the one I actually do right now, which doesn't have much affection. It doesn't have much family feeling to it. But here's what I think is the biggest problem with that phrase. If we give ourselves permission to love but not like each other, although that's part of the deal a lot of the time, if we give ourselves permission to have that as the goal, you know what we're going to do? We're going to think that's how God loves us. He loves me but didn't like me. He tolerates me, he puts up with me. He's stuck with me because he made this covenant and he can't get out of it. But he would like to if he could. But he's stuck with his faithful character so there it is. I think maybe the majority of Christians I know, I think, think that way. I want you to know God's fond of you. The kind of love he calls us to is the kind of love he has for us. It's a fondness, it's an affection. It's a delight, even, in Christ. I, I think God thinks my jokes are funny. <laughs> Not because they always are, but because he likes me. And we tend to think people we like are funny. I, I want you to know that God is fond of you. Uh, think of feelings you have for a, a little girl or a little boy that is just delightful. And you know, I just last week, I was I was in this room, and there was this baby with these cheeks and these legs like the Michelin man, you know? <laughs> this is wonderful. And this this college student walked in the room and she saw this baby and she goes, oh. And then she said something you hear people say that's actually quite strange. She said, I want to eat you up. (laughs) You've heard this, right? And you probably know what that's about, right? That is anything but this. No, I'm committed to loving you even though I don't like you. No, we're called to a kind of affection that, yes, sometimes take a, takes a long, serious, committed process. But it starts with seeing God for who he is in ourselves and one another the way God sees us. And you can't do this. I can't do this. Unless God enables us to. To love and give ourselves to one another without reservation in a world that gives us every reason to be self-protective, to be walled off, to be mad because every time we've loved, it doesn't seem to be sufficiently reciprocated or even acknowledged. So we'll shut down and it shows us why we're loving in the first place. But we've got to see our truest family here. Philemon 1.10, listen to what Paul says. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He says in Romans 16, Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. You know, I preached at Jerry Wyrick's funeral and one a memorial service here, and one of the things I said about her is she has been a true mother to me here at Grace. 1 Corinthians 4, I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 1 Timothy 1 2, he calls him my true child in the faith. Just beautiful, the family connections. And John says, I have no greater joy than that my children are walking in the Lord. And he's not talking about the children in his home, he's talking about his spiritual children in the church that he's writing to. We're children of God. And Jesus really puts it in perspective when some people say to him when he's in a house, Your family's waiting outside. And he says, Who is my family? Who is my mother and brothers? He says, here are my mother and my brothers, those sitting around him. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And the family of God is able to provide the kind of family we can very often lack in this tragically fallen world. And we need to be ready for the reality of this. When we get serious about it, we're gonna be disappointed. We're gonna be hurt. We're gonna be discouraged. But we're family. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with its all, all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given it. Listen to David Goetz. The biggest problem in any church I attend is myself and my love of self, and my penchant to roam when I sense my needs aren't being met. Frustration and conflict are the raw materials for spiritual development. All the popular reasons given for shopping for another church are actually spiritual reasons for staying put. They're means of grace preventing talk of spirituality from becoming merely sentimental or philosophical. Biblical spirituality is earthly, face-to-face, and often messy by not taking my toys and playing elsewhere. That is, finding a church that connects with my immediate spiritual need right now. I move forward in my spiritual journey. I give up control. I forfeit my options in an environment of choices. Now, there are good reasons to leave a church. There are moral reasons to leave a church. There are theological reasons to leave a church. There are practical reasons that are good to leave a church. But so frequently in our consumer-oriented culture, It's not good reasons, and it's the very thing very often that leads us away from a church that God wants to use to really deepen us as his people. And the church will never be perfect until Jesus returns. But our salvation will show itself in the way we love the people of God. Listen to 1 John 3.14. We know a sure sign that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. And so, showing up and serving and being committed, diving into relationships, taking time for that to happen, having knowledge of one another and commitment to one another that brings a kind of love that'll be dramatically different from what we find in the world. Home, you've heard, is where the heart is. And our hearts are where Jesus is. And among God's people is where Jesus is. Most definitively, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Home is where Jesus is. And where Jesus is, is where the people of God gather. Now he's everywhere present all the time. But the gathering of God's people is a place where the presence of Christ is intended to be most clearly seen in this fallen world in the way we love one another. They'll know you're my disciples in the love you have for one another. There's coming a day when our home in heaven will be without discouragement, without disappointment, without sin and hurt and failure. And Jesus has prepared that place for us. But until then let's live in this world in a way that gives the world a glimpse of what's coming in our home in heaven let's pray together Lord thank you for your amazing grace and your goodness thank you for the joy of being your children of being family and Lord even though it doesn't feel like it for us sometimes we know it's true and Lord I pray that we at grace would become more of a family in the way we live and think and feel and serve and show up than we've ever been before. And I pray that this would increasingly be a safe place and a place where we're well cared for, a place where we are able to drop our guard because we know we're with family. So, Lord, we pray that you would be working each day in our lives. We pray that now as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would do it with grateful hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.